Hi, I'm Jack, and this is Tuck In, We're Rolling, Queer Hollywood Stories. This week's episode is titled The Hayes Code and Other Terrible Ideas, and this is kind of a long episode, but it might be the most important one because it lays down the basis for a lot of our future discussions. We're going to start off with the basics. The Hayes Code came about in 1930, but it wasn't really enforced until 1934. Basically, what happened was that way back in 1915, the Supreme Court heard a case called Mutual Film Corp v. Industrial Commission of Ohio, and they voted 9-0 to zero that free speech did not extend to films. The courts kind of reasoned uh, that as a form of mass media, movies could literally be used for evil, and for some reason, uh, this decision also applied to circuses. That's not entirely relevant, but I just kind of thought it was a weird aside. The decision by the court was what drove the studios to more closely and strictly regulate their content. This decision was eventually overturned in 1952 with the hearing of the Joseph Burstyn, Inc., the Wilson case, also known as the Miracle decision because of the short film The Miracle that the case was heard over, and it really kind of marked a decline in movie censorship in the U.S., but by this time, the damage had already been done. So uh, what was the Hayes Code? The Hayes Code was essentially the theaters and studios agreeing to self-censor in order to avoid losing any more money from religious-led boycotts of movies or local governments refusing to show immoral films. As I've mentioned, times were kind of tough in Depression-era Hollywood, and a lot of studios went under or cut their contract stars to save money or try to cut costs somehow. The code is officially called the Motion Picture Production Code, but it was known as the Hayes Code after William H. Hayes, who was the head of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America. And it's basically the very racist grandfather of the MPAA rating system that we know and love today. Now, how does this come back to queer history? Thank you for asking all six of my followers on SoundCloud. Uh, Let me read the entire section of the Hayes Code pertaining to what it calls impure love. In the case of impure love, the love which society has always regarded as wrong and which has been banned by divine law, the following are important. One, impure love must not be presented as attractive and beautiful. Two, it must not be the subject of comedy or farce or treated as material for laughter. Three, it must not be presented in such a way to arouse passion or morbid curiosity on the part of the audience. Four, it must not be made to seem bright and permissible. And five, it must not be detailed in method or manner. I've included a link to a copy of the Hayes Code pamphlet and the transcript of it that I just read from on the blog so you can go check out the kind of stuff it talks about. And it talks about a lot. No interracial marriage or romance, no adultery, no white slavery, no boobs, no disrespecting the American flag, and no dissing the clergy. It's kind of intense, and it also kind of explains a lot of the weird wholesomeness and out-of-left-field endings you get with a lot of movies from the 1930s and 40s. You know, a lot of um, criminals end up going to jail and being punished for their crimes kind of thing. Um, There were, obviously, stereotypes and stigma around being queer before the Hayes Code, but it really cemented this feeling of othering extending even beyond queer people. The pre-code, you had a lot of movies that used drag or gender role reversal for laughs. In 1915, Charlie Chaplin dressed in drag for a movie called A Woman, and so did Fatty Arbuckle in Miss Fatty. 
Early films use the so-called sissy or pansy stereotype, one I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, the flamboyant and feminine caricature of a gay man who had no real humanity to speak of and was only there for a laugh. It was kind of the beginning of uh, this stereotype that you know we, we literally still see today. And even if it was harmful and still is, it wasn't as overtly hateful as some of the things that we're going to see later. Now, I've done a lot of digging into what was going on with pre-code lesbians, and I found some movie titles and a few references, but not all that much. Lesbians weren't shown as much as their gay male quote-unquote pansy counterparts, but if they were shown, they were butch cross-dressers for the audience to laugh at, or they were weirdo older spinsters who were dead by the end of the movie. Big surprise, right? Uh, Some notable portrayals of lesbians, overt or implied, include Louise Brooks in the 1929 German film Pandora's Box, and this is one where the romantic relationship is implied. There is Marlena Dietrich in Morocco in 1930, which we're going to talk about in detail next episode. There's a girl-on-girl dance scene in 1932's Sign of the Cross, and a butch lesbian in 1933's Women They Talk About. And, of course, there's Greta Garbo kissing another woman in Queen Christina in 1933. Of course, it's kind of difficult to find these references, so I want to point out that people have been dismissing lesbians and women who love women as gals being pals for a really, really long time. After the Hays Code, a lot of this overt sexuality gets swept under the rug, and it's buried underneath a ton of subtext. Culturally, you're looking at a time, again, going back to what we talked about last week with this this whole masculine panic, uh, when men are looking at homosexuality as a direct attack on masculinity. During the Depression, you know, men were already feeling emasculated because they were losing their jobs and they couldn't afford to take care of their families. And they're looking at effeminate men and masculine women, and they're just freaking out. And so even though pre-code movies were using shock value, um, things like queer people or prostitution and violence uh, to get butts into seats and boost ticket sales, there was still this pervasive anxiety from men getting all scared about their masculinity and from religious groups who were worried about the effects of on-screen sinning on polite society. The Hayes Code essentially killed the pansy and buried queer people in hints and subtext. In the 1930s and 40s, if you're queer in a movie, you're either really vaguely defined like the character of Joel Cairo in The Maltese Falcon, who is explicitly gay in the source material, and or you're a villain, also like Joel Cairo in The Maltese Falcon. So censorship uh, evolved a little bit to say, basically, you can show perversion of almost any kind, but you can't show it in a positive light. And this sort of gels with the feelings of the time. You have characters running around committing crimes because of their sexuality, because back then people thought that being gay drove you insane, as well as being a sin. Uh, People thought of being gay as being a disease or a defect, and you have police raiding gay bars and harassing women dressed in men's clothing, and it's really not a great time to be queer. In 1948, Hitchcock's Rope comes out, and he's very obviously skirting the censors with the two antagonists. It's very, very thinly veiled that they're in a romantic relationship, but they're also still murderers. But that kind of moves us along into the 50s when that miracle decision has the court saying that no, films are protected by the First Amendment and they're an art form. And this is really when censorship in film starts to decline. It's not the absolute death of them, but it is the beginning. 
This is also about the time that uh, it's ruled that studios can't own the movie theaters that they that show their movies. So the monopoly on the film industry is broken up, and the power of the old studio studios is greatly reduced. Uh, you know, there's still a censorship code at this time, of course, uh, but it's really loosening up in the mid-50s. The code at that time allowed for hints of queerness as long as it was used for humor or if the person was punished for their so-called deviance, which uh, eventually led to 1959's Suddenly Last Summer, starring big names like Liz Taylor, Katherine Hepburn, and my favorite actor, Monty Clift. And this movie is a landmark. Um, it has what's considered to be the first movie with a named explicitly gay character. Now, that's great and all, uh, but the shitty part comes from the plot. Basically, this guy is murdered violently and his cousin, who's played by Katherine Hepburn, sees it and goes nuts. So the mom, played by Liz Taylor, tries to bribe Monty Cliff's character into lobotomizing her niece so no one finds out that her son was gay. And don't worry, I'm going to talk a lot about Monty in a later episode, and we'll talk about what kind of effect the movie had on him as a closeted gay man, but this movie basically proved to the public that being a mama's boy or being controlled by your mom led to being gay, and it also sort of implied that violent murder was the inevitable fate of gay men, and also that they kind of deserved it. Uh, this is sort of a trend moving into the 60s. You've got a lot of subtext in the 1959 remake of Ben-Hur, a lot of covert themes and implications. But at the time, audiences weren't so interested in boycotting a film because of religious leaders. And movies with so-called questionable content didn't really need production code or religious approval anymore. But even though we've got the code loosening to compete with TV and the rise of the indie studio after the breakup of the old studio monopoly, you've still got a lot of queer characters who are miserable and depressed and they're suicidal or homicidal, and a lot of them are still dead by the time the, cre the credits roll. In 1965, a movie called Inside Daisy Clover comes out, and there's a gay man in it, and he isn't miserable or struggling, and he survives the entire movie. But he's never explicitly named as gay. It's all still buried in subtext. In 1967, we get Marlon Brando and Liz Taylor in Reflections in a Golden Eye, starring Brando as a repressed gay army major. And that's a role that was supposed to go to Monty Clift, uh, but he turned it down due to his declining health, supposedly. And this is kind of an interesting, weird movie about sexual repression, heterosexual and homosexual, and the violence that it can spark. And I'm going to talk in depth about this movie when I do my Brando episode, so I'm going to put a pin in this discussion for now. The 60s also brought us the beautiful weirdness of Andy Warhol, Kenneth Anger, and others like him, and they have re fully realized complex gay characters. But... We don't see movies marketed towards a gay audience until the 1970s. And in 1968, the Hays Code kind of hit its final death knell with the introduction of the MPA rating system we're all familiar with today. So why this long history lesson? I wanted to talk uh, about this bit of film history for, for several reasons. First of all, chronologically, it makes sense in the context of the show. Last week, we talked about noted vampire Rudolph Valentino. I finished American Horror Story Hotel, by the way. And he died before the Hays Code was even written, uh, a whole year before it, to be exact. 
Second, it's important to talk about all of this to give context to our future discussions about Hayes-era movies and about the environment that actors were working in. Next week, we're going to be talking uh, a little bit about some of the ladies that I mentioned this week, Marlena Dietrich, uh, Greta Garbo, and Catherine Hepburn, women whose work spanned pre to post code. Uh, We're going to pick up this thread of queer representation post Hayes code in a couple of episodes, but for now, you have some background. Third, and kind of most importantly, you can look at some of the stereotypes that we still have today and be able to trace them back to their origins. You see these harmful stereotypes all the time on TV and in the movies. So we have, say, uh, Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs, and we can draw a straight line all the way back to Joel Cairo in The Maltese Falcon. And none of this is an excuse or anything. It was wrong then and it's wrong now. But now we have context and we can ask Hollywood, why haven't you changed? Why do these offensive things still seem to be happening? You know, back in the 50s, it was playing into toxic masculinity and that same fear of independent women that was driving criticism of Valentino in the 1920s. And for whatever reason, we still have caricatures of queer people on the screen, as well as this pervasive toxic and performative masculinity. We have a lot of trouble finding fully realized complex queer characters that don't end up dead or alone or even still hidden in subtext. Now, there's a great moment in the last season of True Blood, really the only great moment besides uh, Ryan Quantin and Alexander Skarsgård's sex scene, when Lafayette lashes out at Jessica after she catches him and her current boyfriend hooking up. And it's so good, and it sums up what I want to say so well that I'm going to leave you with it. Everybody else in this fucking town is falling in love and getting engaged and having babies. Has it ever occurred to you that Lafayette, that queen that makes all you white heterosexuals laugh and feel good about yourselves, has it fucking ever occurred to you that maybe I want a piece of happiness too? Thank you for listening to Tuck In, We're Rolling, Queer Hollywood Stories. This episode was researched, written, and recorded by me, Jack Segretto. You can find a transcript of this episode in all of our episodes, along with sources, fun facts, and photos on our Tumblr, tuckinpodcast.tumblr.com. You can also give us a like on Facebook at facebook.com slash tuckinpodcast. We accept messages on both of these platforms, so feel free to shoot us uh, suggestions for show topics and comments. Uh, We upload new episodes every Wednesday, and you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and now Google Play. Don't forget to rate and subscribe so more people can find us. So thank you for listening, and we will see you next time.